This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. New rules proposed by the Federal Trade Commission to ban workplace non-compete agreements have stirred a lot of opinions. Workers' rights advocates say the move will help wages finally break out of their stagnant pace. However, some aren't so sure about that. One of them is Brian Albrecht, chief economist at the International Center for Law and Economics, who I had a chance to speak to about the proposal. So a few weeks back, the Federal Trade Commission proposed a basically a total ban on non-compete clauses, which non-competes are an agreement you sign when you start with a new employer that says, after, say, a year, you won't go and work for any competitor. And they have different restrictions, different time lengths, but they're pretty general, or they're pretty common. They show up around 20% of contracts, about 40% of people have signed one in the past. And so now the FTC says, okay, we're proposing to ban them, we have a 60-day comment period, and then after we've heard from people, we'll issue our final ruling at some period after that. So at this stage, it's still proposed, but kind of the general vibe on the street is that the general proposed rule is basically what the final rule is, that there's no new information that's going to come in. There's some stories that will come in, but like the basic research has been done by the FTC. Got it. And we're as somebody who signed one of those, uh, I can say that you described it perfectly well. Were you or any of any one of your organizations, uh, are, are you going to be among the, the commenters on the uh, proposed rule? Yeah. So we have enough. My uh, International Center for Law and Economics, where I work, has not uh, submitted our comments yet, but we will submit official comments right now. We're in the kind of more general public conversation stage of it while we're working on fishing up our comments. It's something we've worked on for a while, so we have a lot to kind of build on. But by the end of the comment period, whatever, or beginning of March, we'll have something. Well, don't make me wait now. What uh, Can you give me some insight on what those comments will so, contain? So the, our general skepticism, we have a general skepticism towards the ban. We'll see where the official you know, institutional comments come down. I'll, I'll say more about where I'm coming from. It's early in the research phase on this topic, what we know of the effects, the costs and the benefits. And there are costs and benefits. Everyone seems to be talking as if it's just a cost on the worker. But we have research that suggests workers who sign these have you know, received more training. Certain industries, they have higher wages, like doctors who sign them have higher wages. So there's a cost and benefits to you know, allowing these, and we're at a very early stage in the in the research of it, and so we think a universal ban across the United States is a little dramatic and probably unjustified. Now, I work with a bunch of lawyers who will make the lawyer case of why the FTC isn't allowed to do this. I'm an economist. Uh, I'm not going to make that type of argument. I don't know the ins and outs of, of the legal rules, but when I, when I, as the economist, look at the evidence, look at the costs and benefits, I could see it going either way. Maybe they're sometimes really bad. I mean, there's stories about Jimmy John's and enforcing them on line workers, but they never were actually enforced. That seems not a good use of non-competes. At the same time, CEOs uh, seems reasonable to not allow one CEO to go to a competing company. It seems like a, a, a reasonable contract to, to tie uh, the CEO's hands. And unless it's a CEO owner, the proposed rule would ban that. 
And so from your standpoint and listening to you, it sounds as if you're saying you can do this rule, but it's kind of a wash maybe that perhaps, you know, there are, you said there are some instances where it actually helps workers, which is obviously the intent here is to try and get wages higher since they've been stagnant for so long. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? So, yeah, so there's evidence that banning these raises wages. So we have uh, the state of Oregon is one example that banned this in 2008. The best research on this and looking at that, looking at that episode finds that wages for workers goes up about 2%, 3% maybe. Okay. Uh, which is a big number. That's a huge effect. And that's the number that the FTC is running with. That's basically one study. I, I, it's a well-done study. I, I'm really uh, impressed by the work that the authors did on it, but who knows what the next episode would be. There, you know, there's lots of confounding factors in any one study, why in general in economics we try to trust a giant literature. And this literature is growing, but it's not like, say, the effects of taxes or the effects of regulation, which we have just you know 100 years of research on. We really only have about 10 years of research, and econ research is not super fast. Okay, so there is benefit. There's reason to believe that wages for particular workers, particularly low-skilled, low-income, low-wage workers, will will rise under a ban. Uh, At the same time, there's evidence that other wages will drop. And kind of the net effect is what economists are fighting over, what that looks like at at the moment. Yeah. And something that's always been curious to me, and you talked a little bit about it in Jimmy John's case, uh, was regarding the enforceability factor of these non-competes. You know, I can personally say in the radio industry, I know several people who are moonlighting (laughs) uh, going against their non-competes. And I guess they just kind of hope their employer doesn't find out. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in your in your study of the topic and of industries on where, you know, these things are super highly enforced? So they do exist and people sign them in lots of places where they shouldn't be signed if you're kind of reading the letter of the law. So in California, California has banned these for many decades. If you are someone working in California, again, not a lawyer, they shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be signing them. Yet people do in different circumstances. And the general reason is companies across many states, many job levels and stuff have kind of uniform contracts. They just have everyone sign the same, just as you sign the same, uh, you know, you fill out the same W-2, you fill out the same, uh, non-disclosures, you know, you sign in the same non-compete. And so they exist in places where they will not be enforced. Now, you can think of that going two ways. One is like, well, it's something you sign, but it's not enforced. So why do we care about it? Why do anything about it? It's just like it doesn't have any meaning. I think people are worried, and rightfully so, that workers don't know that it's not enforced. And therefore, the chilling effects, the you know unwillingness to leave – has an effect even if they're quote unquote illegal. And so so it, it's a tough thing to tease out in the data too, because, okay, what, how do you get a sense of how much people are affected by these non-binding contracts that they sign? You can ask them surveys, survey questions of difficult legal matters are notoriously you know a hard thing to understand. Uh, so we don't quite know. So I, I'm not ready to say, that just because they're not enforceable means they have no effect and therefore we should ignore them. At the same time, courts have done a job, a good job of kind of um, not, they, they have started to say that, okay, these are situations where these are legitimate. These are situations where they're not legitimate uh, based on, uh, you know, 
common law things that I don't really understand. But doing this more fine grain, okay, sometimes we can have non-competes that have good value for the company and the worker. Sometimes they're clearly uh, kind of meant to hurt the worker. But instead of just a blanket ban that says everything is bad, it's a little, it's more on the margin, as economists would say, it's a little more fine grain. And there's, I think, important benefits to that in the sense that we can discover, we can learn over time, you know, who is, who is benefiting, who is hurting, instead of just, nope, we, the science is settled, quote unquote, the science is settled, let's ban it. And as you reiterated several times, I know you're not a lawyer, um, but as somebody who studies the effects of regulations on the economy and what different agencies do, I was all, I was just a little surprised that this came from the FTC. Um, you know, I just thought that maybe the Labor Department would be someone who got involved in this. And I, I thought the FTC was more talking about, you know, antitrust issues and in different industries and things like that. What can you say about that? And were you surprised at all? I was completely surprised on one hand, because yes, like you, it's it's this is rewriting labor contracts for everyone. This applies retroactively. So if you your non compete that you signed, if this rule goes through, will be voided. Okay, and that seems like something that the labor you know, Department of Labor would do traditionally. On the other hand, uh, the the f- current Federal Trade Commission has made it clear going back uh, through speeches over the last two years, that they this is something that they want to do. So I wasn't surprised from that angle. But, you know, it's the reason that they think it's in their jurisdiction is they think that it's something called an unfair method of competition, that they are, they are doing something that is unfair and that is in their purview. And it'll be up to the courts to decide and, and litigate between defendants and the FTC or, the, you know, the FTC and uh, people suing them who is going to uh, be right on, on that point. But yeah, I, 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 this is a new labor regulator that uh, I would have guessed the Department of Labor. Got it. And yes, and there will be, I'm sure, challenges up the wazoo uh, to this rule if, you know, if in what you're saying, when it goes into effect. I don't want to hamstring you to a prediction, but um, what do you think is on the, uh, uh, you know, in the future for this? And do, does this mean that there may be more of a crackdown at, in a more case by case basis, like you said, uh, that you think would be more ideal? So I think that the FTC is going to push through the proposed rule as it is, basically. There might be some minor concessions that they make versus this blanket ban. But I think they're going, they're going to propose the, – the proposed rule is going to be, become a rule. Now the question is what happens in the courts. And I think this is, from my reading of, of, of precedent, that's basically unprecedented and it's going to get challenged. It's going to get go through a long legal mess that's going to you – know, uh, you know, get it, get it stayed at different points. And it's going, I, I, there's going to be a lot going on. If I'm going to make a prediction, I think that the courts will curtail it some, and then it'll, it will be the kind of, instead of having this dispute between the worker and the employer and kind of saying, is this, is this allowed or that not allowed? I think courts are going to step in and say, this, this is within your jurisdiction. This is not within your jurisdiction. Now, one of the things that makes it one thing that would make it uh, unlikely to stand as a blanket ban is is this idea that comes out of a recent case between the EPA and West Virginia, which is that the Supreme Court says, well, basically, if you're going to make some major change, this has to be something that you are given the power by Congress. It can't be that there's some vague wording that then opens up a can of worms and you could do whatever you want. It's called the major questions doctrine. If it's a major question... Congress has to give you authority to do it, or at least a little more direct authority to do it. 
And I don't see anything besides a vague comment about unfair methods of competition that says, okay, now we can rewrite labor contracts across the entire United States. Maybe if the Department of Labor had done this, it would be different. I don't, I don't know the Department of Labor. I studied the FTC and their, and their purview. But it seems to me that this is not at all what was intended in, in the kind of plain meaning of any text that the FTC is drawing on. I think it's just it's important to always put policy on par with our evidence. So if people have heard news about the proposes to ban gas stoves, and it's based on very weak evidence from my understanding. And there's rightful pushback that the evidence corresponding to the policy proposals are kind of not in line. And I think that's the case here. I think there is better evidence. There's good evidence being done, that the good research being done. At the same time, it's not the type of thing that I would say is is on equal footing with a national ban by the FTC of a proposed rule or uh, of a rule that they just you know make up themselves three of the commissioners i just think that that's too much of a leap and i'm a i have faith in economic research i think it's something that guides our understanding but i also have you know an understanding of how ignorant we all are and we need to kind of discover this together instead of a handful of papers boom rewriting all of uh, uh all of labor contracts in the u.s brian albrecht is chief economist at the international center for law and economics Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn. Uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused. 
has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to 
uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.